Well, good morning. As I mentioned last Sunday, um, today we are beginning a six-part series called The Bridge to Eternal Life. And I've decided to do this series for uh, three basic reasons. First of all, because Scripture says that the gospel is of first importance. In other words, there is a sense in which we never graduate from the gospel. And so we have to be constantly refreshing our minds as far as what does the gospel really mean? What is this good news that God has given to us? Another reason is because of what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 1, which is that he wrote his letter to stir believers up to remembrance. That means that you and I have the tendency to forget. And perhaps the gospel is one of those things that we uh, are at risk of forgetting because we become too familiar with it. And then thirdly, I I want to give you a simple tool to uh, use to teach others how to understand the gospel and how to receive the gift of eternal life through faith in Christ. And so what I'm going to be presenting to you in the next six Sundays is somewhat of a modified and expanded version of something that I was taught as a brand new believer. God saved me in the early months of 1984, and immediately he brought me into a discipleship small group Bible study and we worked ourselves through the Navigators 2-7 series and spent a year and a half meeting weekly. And one of the things that I was taught was this bridge illustration. And um, so what I'm going to be teaching you is an expanded, um, what I think is a a richer version of that. Um, What I was taught I love and I continue to use, but as far as turning it into a sermon series, it gives me the opportunity to go deeper into the truths of the gospel. Because as you can see, that the Bridge to Eternal Life, this series, is about keeping the gospel simple. Notice it does not say presenting the gospel in a simplistic way, because the gospel is not simplistic. The gospel is deep. The gospel is rich. But it's also a very simple message. It's so simple that a child can understand and embrace Christ. And so I want to help you to understand some of the depth and riches of the gospel, but also help you to see how it really is a simple message. It is the good news from God. And as we teach it to other people, it's important that we keep the gospel clear, that it is of first importance. We need to be reminded of it, and we need to know how to communicate it to those who do not yet know Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So it's not our clever techniques that God uses to bring people to saving faith in Christ. It's not our modification of the gospel message to make it simplistic or easier for people to understand or or kind of dumbing down the truths of the gospel. It's not that at all. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so it's something we deeply need to understand 
ourselves and to continue to worship Christ for, but it's also something we need to understand in a way that we can present it, teach it to others who do not yet know Christ. The gospel is simple. Religion is complicated. Some of you know this from experience. I certainly do. I was born and raised into a very complex religion where I never knew where I stood with God because it was all based upon me and what I could do and should do and might do and hopefully don't do. But the gospel is a simple message based solely upon what Christ has already done. So the relig- religion, man's religion, very complicated. The gospel, simple message. So noticed in the first illustration here, we'll be showing you a number of different illustrations to help you to see this concept, that uh, the gospel begins with God. And you don't need to try to draw all of these, okay, uh, throughout this series. I'll give you something at the end of the series to hopefully really... Uh, encapsulate everything for you and give you something you can meditate on and give you something that you can then use to teach others about Christ. But the gospel begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. In fact, as Paul begins to write the book of Romans, which is the richest and longest letter having to do with the gospel, Paul calls the gospel the gospel of God. In the very first verse. So the gospel is God's gospel. It is first and foremost about God. It is his good news to sinners like us. And it begins with this simple truth that God is holy. God is holy. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that God is set apart. God is holy. And let's develop that a little further. So open your Bibles to the book of Romans, the New Testament letter of Paul to the Romans. That's where we will be all this morning, is in the book of Romans. And to help you to see what is this gospel of God that Paul talks about in the very first verse of this book. Well, this good news from God begins with an understanding of who God is. Because if you do not understand who God is, you will never understand who you are. So that's why we start with God. God is holy. That means that he is distinct. He is set apart. There is none other like him. As one of the songs that we sang uh, just a few minutes ago, Mentioned that there is no other like him. That's what it means that God is holy. Okay? Well, we see this first of all in chapter 1, in verses 19 and 20, that he revealed his nature in creation. So God alone is the creator. There is no other creator. And in creation, he has revealed certain aspects of his nature. So many of his attributes that God can then hold every sinner accountable for the revelation that he has given to us. Notice what it says in Romans 1 and verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So God is holy in that he is unique, set apart. He alone is the creator. And what does Paul says? It is that through creation, the existence of God is known. His power is known. Invisible attributes are made visible through creation. God has made his existence plain, not complicated, plain, obvious, in his revelation, so much so that he then can hold every creature accountable for the revelation that he has given. That's what it means in verse 20 at the end. So they are without excuse. So the revelation of God in creation is enough to condemn us, but it is not enough to save us. And we'll get there later. Okay, But that's the first part of what it means that God is holy. He revealed his nature in creation. Secondly, notice that it means that his wrath is revealed against sin. That he is holy, he is distinct, he is set apart from us. So after God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 teaches us that. That then Genesis 3 tells us that under the influence of the devil, that first man and woman sinned. And that then drove a wedge between the Creator God and man. And so his wrath then is revealed against sin. We see this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God is revealed against sin. The wrath of God is his holy hatred for anything that is unlike him. Okay, in the sense of sinfulness and, and lack of distinctiveness and anything that is on offense to his holy character. And how does man chiefly oppose God? It says in verse 18, that through their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. So mankind suppresses the truth. In other words, sees the existence of God, sees the revelation of God in creation, but holds it down, suppresses it, holds it down so that it cannot be seen. That's why the, the false doctrine of evolution has been so destructive to society because it has been an intellectual, so-called intellectual way to suppress the very truth that God has so obviously, plainly revealed in creation. That what we look out and see and enjoy had to come from someone who was absolutely, infinitely brilliant as a designer. And 
it takes more faith to believe the opposite than it, was, than it does to embrace the reality that God has revealed himself. So then verse 21 picks it up, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, for, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This then is the beginning of this downward spiral, downward cycle, that when mankind refuses to acknowledge who God is, who he has revealed himself to be in creation, then there is this downward spiral of darkening of the mind. The mind is darkened, 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 to the point where then God says, that's the way you want it, that's the way you can have it. And then lets us get to rock bottom so that we will look up and realize how desperately we need him. Thirdly, God is holy means that he is the righteous judge. Turn to chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? He asks the question. Now, that is following a, an extensive uh, passage where Paul is teaching that the religious man, or in this case the Jews who received the law of God, has more knowledge more knowledge of God, more revelation of God through the scriptures. So he says, what then are we, because he was a Jew, he says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. So we're not better off because we have the knowledge of God. No. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All are born in sin. He says that in chapter 5, that through Adam, we all were conceived in sin. So much so then that he quotes from the Old Testament to confirm God's verdict, that when God looks down from heaven upon all of mankind, this is his verdict. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. There's none righteous. This doesn't mean there are not varying degrees of righteousness that we would perceive in people on a horizontal level as we would be the judge, but we're not the judge. God's the judge, and he looks down from heaven, and he sees every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet is without the required righteousness without the righteousness that he alone requires. And so this is the verdict. He goes on, verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is what the world looks like when God says, as he does in chapter 1, you want it that you want it your way, you can have it your way. And he gives mankind up to the evil desires of their hearts. 
Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We may think by keeping the law, we may think by keeping the rules of man-made religion, we can grow in righteousness to the point where the judge of heaven may be pleased to justify us, but Paul says, no, the core issue is too deep. It's too rotten. You and I need something infinitely more beautiful than any kind of man-made religion whereby we may climb the ladder into heaven. No. We need a God who will descend the ladder to rescue us, to save us. So let's look at our next diagram. We see then a problem. So God is holy. He is the one who judges sin. Sin is that which separates us from God. Habakkuk 1.13, you may remember from a few weeks ago when we went through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, but the prophet says, your eyes, he says to God, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says it this way, Behold, the Lord's hand is not too short that it cannot save, or his ear too dull that it cannot hear, but your sins have made a separation, see, a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin is the problem. Sin has made the separation. But there is great news. There is really, really good news. And it is this, that God's greatest display of his justice is also the greatest display of his love. And so on the cross, the Son of God endured the punishment that our sins deserved. So God executed his justice through his son's sacrifice, and that display of justice was also the greatest display of his love. And so we move on, and we see that God is not only holy, but he is also loving. And oh, we should be so glad that he is more than holy. He has a holy love for us. And he proved it on the cross. So let's think about the love of God for a few moments. First of all, what does it mean that God is loving? It means that he is full of grace and truth. Going on in chapter 3, notice. But now the righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The righteousness of God has been revealed in his law. So we see that he is a God of truth, but we also see that in the giving of his son, that he is also a God of grace. That righteousness, his righteousness, comes to us on the basis of faith in his son. Why? Because he tells us the truth about ourselves. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions. Think for a moment, no matter how old you are, who is the best person you've ever known in your life? Who is the, I'll make up a word, goodest person? If you could look at one person and say, that man, that woman is goodness. Do you have someone in your mind? God says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a very blanket statement of reality. We have all fallen short of God's glory. Sin has infected us and affected us and continues to effect us to the point where everything about our nature has been touched by sin. So we need something far greater than a new religion. Thankfully, we have a God who is full of grace and truth. Secondly, notice that we have a God who is loving in this way that he gave his son to die in our place. Look at chapter 5. God is so loving that he is the one who took the initiative to take care of our sin problem. He didn't say, clean up your act, and I'll wait until you clean up your act, and then I'll receive you. He didn't give us a new religion to then follow all kinds of rituals and rules and regulations and say, okay, when you've been good enough, when you've been good enough, then I'll close the gap. No, he sent his son to bridge that gap. We see this in chapter 5 or 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Just pause there for a moment. Think about this. God took the initiative to rescue us from our sin. He wasn't sitting up in heaven waiting for us to get our act together. He would still be waiting for me. And he would still be waiting for you. He took the initiative while we were weak, while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, notice that, while we were still sinners, not while we were cleaning up our act, not while we were doing the climbing the ladder of religion thing, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if, since while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? God took the initiative. He gave his son to die in our place. This is a crucial piece of the gospel message. It doesn't stop there. He also promises to give eternal life to all who place their faith in him. In verse 17 of chapter 5. For if because of one man's trespass, talking about Adam's sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam brought sin and condemnation into the world. Jesus brought righteousness and justification to those who believe. 623, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you and I deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let's look again at our illustration and notice God. It starts with God. He is holy. He is loving. And he offers eternal life to those who will come to him. There is no eternal life found anywhere else. But man has a problem we are sinful, we are helpless, and unless we are rescued, we will end up in an eternal death, an eternal separation from God. But praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. God has provided, notice, Jesus and his work he bridges the gap. He is the one who removes sin. He is the one who makes it possible for us who are sinful and helpless to be accepted by God. God has provided the one and only way to be reconciled. And we're going to look at each piece of this diagram throughout these six weeks. So please, do everything to be here, 
to see how they build on each other and come to this incredible, glorious climax at the end. Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. But this does not mean that you and I are automatically saved. God requires, commands a response. And what is that response? It is faith. The response is faith. What is faith? Well, faith is what saves us, or let me say it this way. God saves us through faith in Christ. It's not our faith that saves us. Faith is how we receive the saving grace of God. That's why some people say, well, God surely could never accept me because I just don't have enough faith. It's not the amount of faith you have. It's the object of your faith. That's what determines salvation. What is faith? Well, faith is a coin that has two sides. There are two sides to the coin of faith, that of repentance and belief. Repent means to turn. means to turn away from our sin that the Holy Spirit has convicted us of. It means to turn away from unbelief. But when you turn away from something, you are also turning toward something else, and that is the trust. So we turn from ourselves. We turn from self-righteous religion. We turn from faith in ourselves to eventually save ourselves. We turn to Christ and we trust him. We trust that Jesus is the one, the only one, to bridge the gap between sinful man and God. 1 Peter 3.18 sums up the whole message of the gospel this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered once, one time. Why only once? Because his sacrifice was perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so he offered himself once for all. The righteous one, offering himself for all of us unrighteous ones, so that he might bring us to God, that he might bridge the gap, and we may come into a relationship with God, the creator whom we have sinned against. Jesus is the only one to make that possible. Isn't this a glorious message? Isn't this amazing? And I'm looking forward to reflecting on it more and more in the coming weeks. Let's bow our heads as we prepare now to receive Communion to take part in the Lord's Supper together. Let's just pause in silence and let us talk to the Lord, each of us, about this wonderful good news that we have just heard.
if you are already a believer in the Lord Jesus, that you have been saved from your sin and are an adopted child of God, then the message we heard this morning ought to just thrill your soul. You ought to never get beyond the point where this thrills you, that God would be such a God of love and grace and mercy that he would accept you and me and that he would do the work to make it possible. But perhaps you're here today and you don't yet know the Lord Jesus. May I say to you, God loves you and he proved it already. Don't look for him to make his love known in other ways. Don't look for him to prove himself any further. He has already proven that he loves sinners. And he has sent Jesus to bridge the gap that you might come to him. And if you have never turned away from sin and religion and faith in yourself to Christ, to trust in him, oh, may you do it this very moment in your heart. May you turn to him. And God, as we remember the sacrifice of the Lord through the Lord's Supper, which he gave to us for the purpose of remembrance, may you so continue your gracious work in us that our faith in Christ may be stronger and stronger than it's ever been before. Bless our time. In his name we pray. Amen.